You are listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant newsmaking issues and individuals. My guest today is David Preece. He is the author of The President's Book of Secrets. What motivated you to write this book? I started writing it because it's the book I'd wish I'd had when I was a CIA officer, talking about what had gone before, the mistakes of the past in briefing presidents, secret intelligence, so I could avoid them and make all new mistakes of my own instead of repeating the ones that had already been done. So and the, the focus is really the President's Daily Brief. Exactly. The President's Daily Brief, the book that has been delivered to American presidents, originally under a different name, to John F. Kennedy but then renamed the President's Daily Brief for Lyndon Johnson that every president has received since that gives every day a distillation of the analysis and assessment of foreign affairs, the intelligence insight into situations overseas to help the president make the toughest national security decisions. So what is the distribution? Yeah, the distribution of the President's Daily Brief is always the president and then only the people the president designates to also receive it. And sometimes that's been limited to just the president and the national security advisor. Usually it includes the next circle out, some cabinet secretaries like the Secretary of State, the Secretary of Defense. Sometimes it goes more widely to dozens of people who are involved in senior national security decisions. Well, I would assume the vice president would always get it. Almost always, yeah. The vast majority of vice presidents have received it. A few have not, and it's made it interesting. John Kennedy did not allow Lyndon Johnson to see the predecessor to the President's Daily Brief. At that time, it was called the President's Intelligence Checklist. Hmm. That led to a real surprise in November 1963 when he becomes president and suddenly he's presented with this intelligence document that he has never seen before. Since that time, most presidents have immediately included their vice president. One exception, Richard Nixon was not giving it to Gerald Ford when Gerald Ford became Nixon's second vice president and it took a covert encounter at the CIA. Gerald Ford came out for a tour. He was walking through CIA headquarters, getting briefings on various world issues. And they took him into an office where they just happened to have a copy of the President's Daily Brief on a table. And as he walked by, he said, well, what's, what's that? Well, that's the President's Daily Brief. That's the document we give every morning to President Nixon and Dr. Kissinger. Would you like to see it? And of course he did. So they started briefing Vice President Ford without getting permission from President Nixon and Henry Kissinger. Now, this is only a few months before Watergate blew up and led to the resignation of Richard Nixon. So everybody understood that this was a good idea. Dr. Kissinger reportedly was furious, but he didn't make a stink over it because he knew pretty soon he'd be working for Gerald Ford. And he wanted to keep a job. That's right. You know, I have this picture in my mind of early in the morning, the CIA briefer coming into the Oval Office and meeting with the president. Is that how it happens? That is often how it happens. Most presidents who have received a briefing have done just that. Oval Office, maybe what's called the Situation Room, which is a secure conference room in the West Wing. Some presidents have taken the PDB with them when they're traveling. George W. Bush does that and had, had a briefer with him. Most presidents have read the book because it is a printed book. It can be brief, but it can also just be read. The president gets to decide what to do with it. It's not something that they get when they're president, like Air Force One, and you're pretty much stuck with it. No, this is something they can make their own. They can decide to get it in the form of a book delivered in the morning, like most presidents have. They can get it delivered in the evening, like Lyndon Johnson did. They can get it briefed to them, like both presidents Bush have done, like President Obama did occasionally, Bill Clinton occasionally as well. They could choose not to read it at all if they wanted to. And there are some people who think Richard Nixon didn't even read it. Dr. Kissinger told me he did, and there's some other reasons to believe he did. But it is the president's decision. It's something the president himself, or eventually herself perhaps, So you really controls. get a sense of the style and the way each president works by yeah. how they use this 
Yeah, it's really a window into the personality of the president and how they choose to incorporate this information from all sources, classified and unclassified, to help them make better national security decisions. The way they do that, the way they incorporate this unique book into their daily schedule does tell you something about the way they manage time, about the way they interact with people, and the kind of information they want to have when making tough decisions. You know, there's a sense that Ronald Reagan was not as focused on materials like this. Is that an accurate assessment or not? Yeah, Ronald Reagan did not take a daily intelligence briefing from a CIA officer. He decided he would read his book of secrets instead. But we know he did read it. I interviewed almost everyone who was around him in national security affairs during his eight years. And to a person, they all told me he read carefully anything they put in front of him. Also, his diary notations show that he was reacting to the president's daily brief, referring to his daily CIA briefing on several occasions. Also, some CIA historians went and looked through the classified vaults in CIA headquarters to try to find the actual copies of the first thousand PDBs that went to Ronald Reagan. And they found them. That's almost three years worth of intelligence documents. And they looked at them and they found that Ronald Reagan made notations in a lot of those copies. That's not the mark of somebody who doesn't read this book of secrets. Now, are all these classified now or can scholars or can any of us take a look and see them? All of the modern ones remain classified. The CIA several years ago, in coordination with the Director of National Intelligence, a new bureaucracy above the CIA, and the White House, started a 40-year rolling declassification effort. So for President's Daily Briefs, which used to be completely off limits for declassification, didn't matter how old they were. That has changed. Kennedy's documents, Johnson's documents, Nixon's documents, and Ford's documents are all available online. I say all, but there are a few exceptions still, because in some cases, some things that happened, even in the 1960s and early 70s, still have enough relation to what's happening today, or the intelligence sources and methods being described are still being used today so you'll see some redactions. redactions, those black rectangles that block out the text. You'll see some of that on, on some of them. To me, looking at a representative sample of all of these since the book has come out, I was surprised how much is out there, that they did a good job of getting as much as possible released so the American public can look at these and assess our own history and hopefully learn something from it. I noted that the, the forward is written by George H.W. Bush. He's quite yes. a hero, isn't he, in the intelligence world? He really is. He came into the CIA long, long before I was there. He came into the CIA as the first political director of central intelligence. That is, he was the first person who had been an active politician. He had been chairman of the Republican Party. And he came in, and the impression before he started was, oh, no, this isn't going to go well. We don't want a politician doing this. And they say he had the place wrapped around his finger in a matter of weeks because it was all about serving the officers who worked there. It was about making sure that the things they were doing overseas, putting themselves at risk, were appreciated by the White House and others. It was about convincing Congress that you did not need to dismantle the CIA in the wake of scandals in the mid-70s. Mm -hmm. It was about a feeling of we're in this together. And even though he was director of central intelligence for only about a year, he was revered. That continued when he became vice president for eight years and then president for four years years, and he received daily in-person intelligence briefings every working day. That's the kind of thing that showed he appreciated the sacrifices that a lot of officers made to collect intelligence, but also the efforts that the analysts were putting into making sure that they assessed the situations overseas in the best possible way to help him make some really tough decisions. I, I hate to bring this up because I think all of us are fairly tired of this presidential campaign, <laughs> but there's been a lot of publicity about sure. the briefs that have been given to both candidates. Is that the same brief that the president gets? There's really three tiers of intelligence briefings that relate to the presidency. One is what we've been talking about so far, the president's 
daily brief. The top secret, all sources can be included. There's nothing too sensitive that is delivered to the sitting president and the small handful of people that the president designates to also receive it. Before that, during the transition, when we have a president-elect, the tradition, as long as the PDB has been around, the tradition has been that the sitting president allows the president-elect to start seeing it the day after election day. As soon as we know who the next president is going to be, but before they're in office, they start getting the president's daily brief just by custom. That was only a problem in one year, and that was 2000, because we had an election, and the next day, we didn't know who the president was. We had, what, 37 days of uncertainty. So they both get it? Well, Al Gore was already getting it. He was vice president, and he was already in the inner circle of the president's daily brief. For a matter of weeks, they did not give it to George W. Bush because he had not been elected president. But as time went on, they realized, we're getting to the point where George W. Bush could become president, and he will have the shortest transition in history, and he won't have the time to get up to speed on the practice of reading and using intelligence. So Bill Clinton made a decision. It was unprecedented. For the first time, he allowed access to the Daily Book of Secrets to somebody who was not in a high-level national security position of the U.S. government and had not been elected president because he started getting it before the Florida recount was resolved. So, so that's the second tier is for presidents-elect when they do see the president's daily brief. It's not their own yet. They're reading the version that's given to the president, but it is that book. During the election, a tradition that goes back to 1952 is that the candidates of the major parties get, no kidding, classified intelligence briefings. It does not include the very sensitive sources and methods that the president's daily brief does, but it does include information that could damage U.S. national security if released, classified information. So when Donald Trump said he could tell by the body language of the briefers, what was he really referring to? I have no idea. <laughs> I can tell you, as a former intelligence briefer myself, no one is more aware of the message they're sending, verbally and non-verbally, than an intelligence briefer. Because all of the work that goes into collecting secret intelligence, all of the work that goes into analyzing these very, very difficult situations overseas, if you're the briefer and you miscommunicate that very finely worded assessment, if you somehow give a message non-verbally that's out of sync, with the words on the page, you introduce uncertainty. The whole mission of intelligence is to reduce uncertainty. So I would find it hard to believe that anybody, even inadvertently, would be giving something away, trying to send a message with a wink and a nod different than what was being said. It's certainly possible, but it is exceedingly unlikely that that would happen. We have time just for one more question, and again, staying on the presidential campaign, there hasn't been a lot of discussion about intelligence. Right. What would you like to have seen discussed this year? Yeah, I think it's a legitimate question for any presidential candidate. How do you plan to use intelligence? Because on the campaign trail, most candidates go out there and talk about how they have the solutions for everything. And if you vote for me, I'm going to do this. That implies they already have all the answers. On most issues of national security and foreign policy, the answers aren't easy, and it depends on how things change on the ground. So how are you going to use intelligence to inform those decisions? If you have a policy initiative, and the intelligence suggests that that's unlikely to be successful, how are you going to adapt based on that intelligence information? Nobody seems to be asking those questions, and yet the American people deserve to know. Thank you very much. Our guest today has been David Priest. He's the author of The President's Book of Secrets. It's a good read. Thanks Thank for you. being with us. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org.